Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to our episode today. We are really excited to take a closer look at the topic of language, fear, and science in the yoga world, in the yoga studio, in yoga classes. And this tends to be like a a theme that Travis and I kind of weave in on maybe a low level throughout much of what we talk about in our work together. But today we really wanted to pull this topic out and focus focus on it in a more directed and thorough manner. Because just as a standalone topic, there's so much there that we could dive into. And in order to do that today, we are super excited to have invited a very special guest on the podcast today. And our guest's name is Matthew Hui. And he is a longtime yoga teacher who's from the U.S., but he's based in the U.K. And he teaches anatomy and physiology for many yoga teacher training programs, both in the United Kingdom and internationally. He's really great at what he does. He also recently finished his master's degree in health and exercise science at Brunel University in London. So congratulations, Matt. We're super proud of you and excited for that huge accomplishment. Matt is also the co-author of a brand new book that just released that's called The Physiology of Yoga. We're super excited about this new offering. And he has co-written this book with Dr. Andrew McGonigal. Uh, who's also another uh, really great educator and content creator out there that you should know about. Uh, And also, Andrew and Matt are both contributing together uh, a couple of articles from my blog on um, common misconceptions about physiology in the yoga world. So we're really excited about those coming out as well. But the main reason that we have Matt here today, the main reason is that uh, for his master's dissertation from the program he just graduated from, his dissertation was specifically on language, fear, and science in the yoga studio. So that's the specific topic that we've invited him on to talk about today. I'm super excited about his dissertation because, as we mentioned, like this is a a theme that we kind of touch on throughout a lot of our content But uh, this is the first time I've ever seen like a true like research-based resource really take a look at it, like a look at um, yoga safety and a a fear-based language that tends to be semi-prevalent in the yoga world. So with all of that said, we're so excited to welcome you here today. And Matt, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And it's a big honor of mine, um, especially because I've been following you for so long, Jenny, you know. And I still remember that first article I read from you by Yoga International introducing the idea of Davis's law and how our connective tissue adapts to the demands placed on it. And for my, for me, that was just kind of mind blowing at the time. And I'd, I'd never taught or I'd never learned through my uh, years of, of yoga teaching and 
trainings and that sort of thing that our body actually adapts to the demands placed on it. Uh, so yeah, ever since then, yeah, I've, I've always loved your content and it's a great podcast that you and Travis offer here, especially with Travis's expertise in, in rehabilitation mm -hmm. and injuries and that sort of thing. Being a PhD, that's, that's just brilliant. So thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank, thank you for saying that. I'm super honored that you consider some of the work that I put out there to have been influential and um, that some of these concepts like that now you totally know so well and teach all the time that like yeah. uh, some of them maybe you learned for the first time through through some of those things. So thank you. I'm super honored. Yeah. Matt, I want to I want to ask, given your, you know, your experience with teaching other yoga teachers and your personal experience with you know, being only exposed to some of those concepts that you said for the first time from Jenny, like, what do you think about the yoga world in general's kind of understanding of the science of the body? Like, does the yoga world need to shape up in terms of the improving scientific literacy? And just what, what like, what do you feel is the current pulse there? Yeah. Well, it's hard to say no to that, right? <laughs> Should we be more clued up on science? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I think up until recently, if you look at the, the previous uh, publications on yoga anatomy and that sort of thing, very few of them have references, you know, or cite scientific articles or, or the scientific knowledge that we have available to us. Um, and this is changing with, of course, like Jules Mitchell's book, um, mm -hmm. And Bernie Clark's, he has he has tons of uh, references in his, and our book is is full of references. You know, in fact, we didn't really create any of the content; we just put together what others are saying in a way mm -hmm. about uh, the latest research on yoga and the different systems of the body. And so, I think things are changing, and uh, and we're becoming, as yoga teachers collectively, more clued up towards science. And I think that's that's only a good thing because uh, through science we can. Uh, become better yoga teachers, we can really become more confident teachers, and we can understand the workings of the body even better, you know, and there's this beautiful balance of philosophy and science, you know, there's a reason that mm. PhD is short for uh, doctor of philosophy, <laughs> so philosophy doctor. I love that. Yeah, and, and, you know, science and philosophy very much do meld together, and, and science and yoga can meld together really beautifully. It's not like by looking at uh, yoga scientifically that we are disregarding the, the, the traditional teachings of it of it at all in fact um, you know quite the opposite um, for example I was in a, a, a private yoga class this morning and uh, I, I was asking my client you know so how are you feeling after the sun salutations and she said yeah I can feel my energy flowing now right <laughs> and now that sounds a bit esoteric a bit poetic my energy flowing then we can look at it uh, from a scientific point of view, like as you move more and you warm up more, your circulation is going to increase, your blood vessels will dilate, they'll increase blood flow, increased heart rate, that sort of thing. And energy is also glucose that's transported through the blood. <laughs> so her feeling of increased energy reflects the fact that her blood flow is increasing or, or circulation and um, she has more glucose available to her. So kind of, you can have a poetic way of saying something scientific. So. I don't think at all that they are mutually exclusive and uh, scientific knowledge of yoga can help inform the philosophy also. I love that you pointed that out because I definitely do tend to see that trend sometimes where 
where people do kind of see um, science and yoga or science and spirituality as like in this uh, dichotomous relationship or a binary relationship and that like they that you can't that um, having more of one necessarily cancels out the other that they work against one another somehow. And I just really don't see it that way. I think you just you describe and explain that so well to to me, it seems like science in general, but specifically science of the human body, like we're all living in these bodies and there's so much that goes on, especially with all of the uh, processes and subsystems of the body that so many, many of us are totally unaware of, like we've never learned about that. I mean, really, it could be like a lifelong journey and learning about all of that, I realize. Mm. But I feel like because at least for me, one of the aims of a yoga practice is to cultivate more self-knowledge and self-connection. To me, it seems like studying the science of the body really helps me uh, in that goal, helps me facilitate that goal. And um, it doesn't, to me, seem like I become less connected to myself or something because I like to study anatomy, physiology, biomechanics, things like that. If anything, it just mm. helps bolster that connection. Yeah. And it, it, it teaches us to be grateful for this organism we have. It's an, it's an amazing organism that's keeping us alive and letting us move through our day, helping us get what we want and, and help us do our yoga practice. And it's amazing. All these, these, as you said, subsystems or little things going on, physiological processes to help us uh, achieve these outcomes. Um, even things like uh, burping, if you will. <laughs> so when I, when I teach on a teacher training program, I'll ask the, the to-be yoga teachers about something interesting about their body. Could be like they've had an ACL reconstruction or something else. And um, one person um, who shall remain anonymous <laughs> said that they cannot burp. And at first, you might oh. think, oh, well, that's, that's, that's great, you know? Then you don't have to worry about, uh, I don't know, any rudeness Social at the table or something. Mm -hmm. However, as a result, this ends up creating lots of digest digestive problems. Uh, and she basically has uh, gas building up in her digestive system. And, you know, things like champagne are, are completely off limits, pretty much. Right. So even this process of, of burping, which you wouldn't think is that necessary, perhaps, is actually an mm -hmm. essential part of our physiology. And so it can make you uh, really appreciate these, these amazing things that, that your body is doing. Wow. Yeah, it's really quite an incredible thing, even burping. I, yeah, I didn't realize anyone couldn't burp. That yeah, and of course, there's a name for it, you know. Sure. A whatever it's called. <laughs> right. Yes. But who would have thought? That. Think, yeah, uh, something that just seems like kind of trivial is actually important. And it just shows how, maybe how intentional so many of these processes and ways that our body works really are. I mean, there's so much magic there. And if anything, I think science can help us see that more. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to things like scientific literacy, I mean, I think we all and probably our whole audience is aware of the fact that probably just in general, our society could all use to increase its scientific literacy. I feel like in um, Travis's and my experience, it does seem like the yoga world is maybe even could use more, like more of that. I'm wondering if, uh, Matt, we've talked about how in your experience in uh, having learned in yoga teacher training programs, even, even when they have, a, say, an anatomy and physiology section in them, I'm kind of generalizing just teacher training programs in general, but like they, they are required to have like a certain amount, maybe it's 20 hours of anatomy and physiology. Uh, what, what have you found to be like some of the content 
in the varying programs that you've taken? Like, have they been super concrete, actual science, anatomy, physiology, or has it been something else? Yeah. Well, first of all, as far as I know, most countries, or at least I should speak for perhaps the UK mm. and the US, don't have um, licensing bodies for yoga teachers, of course, right. right? Which means, therefore, that any training can be a yoga teacher training, really. You don't have to have 20 hours of anatomy and physiology. And you could do you know, a one-day training and say, okay, everyone who comes to my one-day training is now a yoga teacher, right? You might not, you might have a problem getting liability insurance, but nonetheless, you can mm-hmm. say this is, I'm running a teacher training, right? So obviously there are some, some bodies set up to, to credit, try to create some standards like Yoga Alliance. Uh, mm-hmm. And so their requirement is to have about 20, though I think they've increased it to basically 30 uh, hours of anatomy and physiology. And they, they have made it a little bit more, uh, uh, should I say, rigorous or robust in terms of what, what they expect you to teach. But previously, it was, it was quite vague. And I think even, or I know, things like energetics and chakras were allowed to be mm-hmm. part of the anatomy and physiology component of a teacher training. And I'm not at all saying chakras should not be taught. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if, if that's an important part of the lineage, then it should definitely be taught. But it, it's not within the, the remit of, of the scientific lens, you know, especially since they're not dissectable, observable things. And science mm-hmm. is really is the study of observ- observable phenomena. <laughs> In fact, there's a, maybe you've heard of this Russell's teapot. Um, so this idea that um, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, came up with this, that he, he said, I can make the claim that there is an invisible teapot or a, a very small teapot orbiting the sun between earth and Mars, but it's so small that no telescopes could pick it up or no measuring devices of, of, of any kind could pick it up. <laughs> but you, you can make that claim, right? Like there's this thing, but it's invisible. So you won't be able to see it, but the burden of proof should be on you to prove that thing. And you shouldn't expect others to believe you if it cannot be observable. Right. right? And so, right. Perhaps it's the same with chakras. And, you know, I, I sort of think there might be some truth to it. I feel like some things <laughs> stirring in my chest at times. So maybe that's a chakra. Uh, but it's not really within the scientific remit. So uh, that's so and, true. And, and you know, so speaking of scientific literacy, and if we're expecting to increase scientific literacy, then th- there do need to be some limits as to what we teach and, and boundaries. Yeah. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. So it can't just be like some person's opinion. Right. <laughs> I think, I think uh, maybe we could talk about that. So like the, the hierarchy of scientific evidence and, and, and mm-hmm. kind of what you said earlier, like a lot of times the, the teachings are, are based on people's opinions without kind of uh, very concrete references to scientific literature and so it's not to say that 
expert opinion doesn't hold any weight. But when we think about comparing expert opinion to things like more rigorously designed studies or studies of studies, which we call systematic reviews or meta-analyses, like, can you talk about kind of the, that pyramid and, and what, a, what yogis or yoga teachers should know about what constitutes higher quality evidence? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is, yeah, this is an interesting thing to learn about. So the, the hierarchy of evidence, as you called it, or the pyramid of evidence, and at the top, you have systematic reviews. And so a systematic review will be conducted by normally a team of researchers, and they'll trawl through all of the scientific literature available on a certain topic. And so there, there are certain um, scientific databases that you can look through, like, of course, Google Scholar, Scopus, uh, Discuss. There, there, there are quite a few. And within their systematic review, the authors would uh, talk about which uh, or name which databases they look through and which keywords they use. So mm -hmm. we might look, for example, at yoga and injuries or adverse mm -hmm. events, for example, and then find all of the studies that looked at yoga and injuries, stroke adverse events. Um, and then from there, compare the, compare the data and see what those found. And come to some conclusions. So that is a systematic review. It is systematized. You know, you have to go through each, you have to go through lots of studies. It's, it's a lot of work. And I was thinking of doing this for my dissertation. Mm. And thankfully my advisor said, why don't you do a coaching resource instead? Which is <laughs> a big relief. So, <laughs> Smart. Uh, that's at the top of the pyramid and that's considered like, the highest level of evidence. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, you know, if it's, scientists sometimes say, if you put garbage in, you get garbage out. So mm -hmm. if, if all of the studies going into the systematic review are garbage, then the, the, the systematic review will be garbage. But hopefully the systematic review will find that and say that these, we found that all of the studies to date are of low evidence, are of low quality, mm -hmm. and therefore mm -hmm. no firm conclusions can be drawn. Okay, so that's a systematic review. And then below that at the top of the pyramid would be randomized controlled trials, which you've probably heard of. This is where mm -hmm. people are split up into two groups randomly. Some are given uh, an intervention that could be yoga or a pill, of course. Um, and then the other group uh, given a placebo or treatment as usual or something like that. And then you compare the results, right? So that's obviously considered a, a high level of evidence. There, there's some problems with that. Like you cannot blind someone to the fact that they're doing yoga, right? Right. <laughs> obviously. So, so it's, it's, it's hard to, to take out the other confounding variables uh, and even the contextual factors. Like just thinking that I'm going to be doing yoga and exercise might make me feel better rather than the yoga itself, right? So we have these confounding variables. It's hard to do a randomized control trial on yoga. And then below that, you have cohort studies where you have two groups of people, perhaps with the same characteristics, um, uh, case control, case series, case reports. So that's when someone presents with, to say a hospital or a doctor or something with, with some weird thing. And these are really useful. Like let's say, for example, uh, someone comes in with this new cough, right? Mm -hmm. And then the doctor says, well, this is a little bit of a different cough than I've seen before. And then they find it's a the strain of COVID or whatever, right? So there's certainly a place for, for case reports where it can build on evidence and we can do more, more group trials and that sort of thing. Um, but th that is lower on the evidence period. And then the bottom, depending on which pyramid you're looking at, are editorial, editorials, expert opinions, 
Um, and then maybe even below that you could say is anecdote, uh, which is basically just two people telling a story <laughs> or you telling a story to someone else. Like uh, I did yoga and my knee got better. And, right. you know, and it's great to think it, that yoga helped your knee, but it could have been something else or it could have been just over time that you you've gotten better. You know, as if you have an injury, you're likely to heal from it. <laughs> you get, you two have mentioned this on your podcast before, like regression to the mean, uh, natural history. So the natural progression of a, of a injury is that it usually gets better. Uh, musculoskeletal injury. So it, as you go up the pyramid, the evidence quality should get better. That's the idea. And the bias should get lower as you go up the pyramid. Okay. Right. Um, but even still, there's, you know, the top of the pyramid relies on, on better quality of evidence at the bottom. And there are even some, some scientists who have, have disagreed with this research pyramid. For example, qualitative research has become much more popular in the last 30 years. Qualitative research is where uh, you're basically analyzing words as opposed to numbers. So quantitative research is really useful for studying something like can yoga lower blood pressure? So you take people's mm -hmm. blood pressure, you have them do a course of yoga, take the blood pressure afterwards. And obviously you should make it, you know, really systematized and, you know, make sure you do it properly and rigorous and all that stuff, follow certain protocols. But then those, those numbers will give you an indication of, of whether yoga can help reduce blood pressure. Whereas a qualitative research would be, okay, so you've been doing yoga for five years. How does it make you feel? And that's mm -hmm. it. And you basically, you record lots of transcripts and you transpose those transcripts and, and you analyze them. And it takes a lot of time, but there's a lot of really interesting uh, information that can come from qualitative research that cannot come from quantitative research. For example, low back pain, mm -hmm. specifically uh, non-specific low back pain. That's where uh, a specific anatomical cause cannot be found for back pain. And amazingly, this accounts for about 85% of cases of low back pain right <laughs> so you're much less likely to have back pain as a result of a herniated disc or or, or something more serious than you are just this general non-specific low back pain even under imaging you can't find anything specific so but through qualitative research we've we've learned okay there are lots of factors that affect back pain including psychosocial factors like um uh how are you feeding in yourself you know um mm -hmm. what's going on in your love life What's going on with your boss, it, with your work life? How are you sleeping? Um, uh, people who, who are clinically depressed have a higher occurrence of pain, both mm -hmm. low back pain and, and, and other places. So qualitative research has helped us to understand about this idea mm -hmm. or this phenomenon of non-specific low back pain, much better than quantitative research could have. So uh, that was a very long way of going about the, <laughs> of the hierarchy evidence, but I think that gives you an idea of, of how complex it is. And quite often, you know, you hear someone say, oh, I heard about a study that uh, found this. <laughs> in, our book, um, in our book, we talk about a made-up study called, uh, or in the New Yoga Times, where it called, <laughs> entitled, um, titled Bananas Cure Cancer. And it's a, a fake article showing, talking about how a new study was conducted on mice about how bananas uh, affected cancer cells 
in, uh, in, in a laboratory, you know, something like that. And so we, we dissect that article and talk about how this may or may not apply to humans and, and the problems with it. But the issue is that quite often we'll hear something like this on the radio or from a friend and then come to the conclusion, okay, I need to eat bananas. Bananas cure cancer. <laughs> That's going to be the, the key to do. Whereas quite often the findings of science are that things are really complex. Physiology is incredibly complex, much more complex than physics, where if you throw a ball, it will land. and You can pretty much predict where it's going to land. Physiology is affected by so many factors, including hormones, mood, so, uh, your social factors, and that sort of thing. So I, th I think that speaks to like when you read something in on the internet about yeah. yoga and it interviews a couple of yoga teachers and then yeah. they make claims without scientific citations to anything, let alone high quality systematic reviews of high quality randomized mm -hmm. controlled trials. <laughs> or when you read in your, your, like your book, your anatomy book that's been assigned in your teacher training where there are no references, mm -hmm. um, this is not science or this is not scientifically founded. This is often based on expert opinion or anecdote, like you mentioned. And we should take less, we should have less confidence in those, con any conclusions that are coming from those resources. Yeah, but anecdote certainly has its place, you know? And I mean, anecdote may have been where someone started saying, uh, one doctor spoke to another doctor maybe in the 60s and said, you know, what? I've noticed my patients mm. who come in and they smoke, they're more likely to have lung cancer. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that could have been the start of research, which... We now quite mm -hmm. firmly know smoking increases significantly your, your risk of lung cancer, right? Yeah. But so it, so it has its place. Yeah. Yeah. It's not in the absence of other high quality evidence, we can go down the pyramid. Uh, yeah. But when, when there are high quality studies on something like, like you mentioned earlier, injuries in yoga, mm -hmm. we should rely on those higher quality or, or higher tiers of evidence as opposed to some person said that they see a lot of injuries in their yoga students. Yeah. And exactly. I, I feel like that's, that's like proliferated to the point where the general public believes things about yoga injuries that, you know, your, your research or your research of other research has shown as not to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, and as a yoga teacher, then you start to become fearful if you hear about all these injuries happening as a result of yoga and, Mm -hmm. I think we've moved beyond this, but, um, you know, William Broad with the New York Times had his famous mm -hmm. article talking about the dangers of yoga, a few of them, and then his book. And actually, that has prompted the research on yoga injuries. So a really important researcher is, is Holger Kramer. And mm -hmm. um, he's done a, a few of the studies that w w I'm sure we'll mention later on the safeness of yoga. And I, I emailed him actually to say thank you, like thanks for your you research. Did? Without, you did. Yeah, I did. I and he responded. Did he, did he write you back? Yeah, he did. Yeah, and that's the great thing about a lot of scientists. I find will respond if you just say thank you. You know, I I try to do that too. If I if yeah. I come across something that I find really profound and really important, I try to let them know because otherwise, how would they know? Yeah, so exactly. True. And so sometimes they write you back, and sometimes they don't. Yeah, but he wrote back. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I asked him also in my email, I said, you know, so was the, was the broad article in 2013 a catalyst for you to start doing this research? And he said, yes. <gasps> he said oh, that yeah. along with the, the media attention that, that came from it, you know? Right. Right. Because, what proliferated. 
yeah, you can have a very catchy newspaper article that says yoga can kill you, right? Like, I'm going to read that as opposed yeah. to yoga is quite safe. Well, who's going to read or, that? Or, or yoga could kill you, but it probably won't. And it's probably fairly safe. Like that kind of hedging your bets. Like, I'm not going to read that. That doesn't sound as fun. Yeah, exactly. Even if that's exactly. the, the honest truth. For our listeners yeah. who may not be familiar with the William Broad article, uh, what, do you remember what the title of it was, Matt? And it's from like, you said 2013. It was, I think it was like how yoga can wreck your body. Wasn't it something yes. like that? Yeah, Isn't it how that? yoga yeah. can wreck your body. That's right. And I mm -hmm. love how you point out, like, I just, I think um, human nature and really it's probably adaptive. We've evolved this way, but we just tend to pay attention to things that are negative, you know, things that like cause the danger alarm to come up versus things that are positive. Like you said, if a whole article comes out in the New York Times, like yoga is pretty safe. Like that's just not that interesting. People yeah. aren't really going to notice that and be like, what? But they'll notice if, um, if, if it's how yoga can wreck your body. And I think it even has this image and we know image can be like what we see can be such a powerful input, but the image is like several people in like these pretzel like shapes or oh, something yeah. like that. Do you know, like, I think that that yeah, was, Mormon, like, I think Mormon might've been in shoulder stand too, which we talked about on our, Oh yeah. Like, like a, a couple. couple episodes ago. And I actually remember, I was just thinking, because when I was reading your dissertation, Matt, and you wrote about that article, I had a flashback to when I was teaching yoga at that time, back in Santa Barbara, when I lived there, I literally had a yoga student and she was amazing and super regular. And she also, I must add, was, is a professor. So to me, that shows like she, it, it was um, like in English literature or something. So not not this type of science we're talking about, but like she's super educated. But she read that article, it came out at that time and it scared her so much that she told me she was gonna stop coming to class. Oh my gosh. Because she was like, I read that article and now I'm afraid that I'm going to like uh, tear my rotator cuff and blah, blah, blah. Like it literally, it literally scared her out of my class because of that article. Case in point. <laughs> There's an anecdote for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, and, th and that's sad, you know, because that's that's someone not doing yoga, and yeah. hopefully she wants to do some other form of exercise to keep herself healthy. But something safer, like uh, soccer, <laughs> football, you know. <laughs> you're actually, because, Travis. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Travis, but those actually have a higher <laughs> in injury rate. I don't know if you looked at that on your yes. PhD, but uh... yeah, but, and that, I think that surprises people, right? Like because. Well, maybe American football, everybody knows that's dangerous. But like soccer is one of the most popular, if not the most popular sports in the world, you know, and uh, people, I don't think people are afraid of recreationally playing soccer because mm -mm. maybe some people are, but um, it doesn't seem to like uh, put fear into people's eyes the way that like uh, these articles do about yoga. And it's like the, totally. the science doesn't support the like that yoga is so much more dangerous than anything else because it's not right yeah yeah broad picked up on just like a few case studies or uh, that, mm, that appeared mm -hmm. in the scientific literature uh two of them from the 70s but and, wow. and so yes like it is possible that an injury can occur from yoga mm -hmm. but or or it can occur at the time that someone is doing yoga which is not necessary to say that it's the cause of yoga. And you guys talked yeah. about that on your injury episode also. Um, it, yeah. It's just that that could be the culminating event or that could be just, it just, it was going to happen anyway, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Someone so was that going would be, anyway. that would be an example of cherry picking, right? Where you right. find things to support your claim, 
even though, you know, you can always find two case studies or two articles, but then you're not considering the overwhelming, all the other articles that would outweigh those two articles because you just, oh, let, we're not going to talk about all of the instances where yoga didn't have adverse events. We're going to pick these two from 50 years ago and, st- <laughs> yeah. and scare you. Yeah. yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Confirmation bias. <laughs> which yes. is a psychological term. And Jenny, you were talking about how we focus on the negative. That's called negativity bias. Mm. <laughs> now you, as yoga teachers, we might get, uh, leaving our class, 20 people saying, oh, that was a great class. I really enjoyed it. But then one person says, oh, I didn't love that. <laughs> but, and of course, that's the one that's going to stick in your mind and you're going to ruminate Always. on it probably. So that's that negativity bias. Some people probably even more prone to, to thinking that way than others, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, That's a great example. Well, thank you for kind of outlining for us both here and also in your dissertation, just kind of um, what what scientific research actually does suggest about the prevalence of yoga injury and that on the whole yoga isn't really any less safe than so many other physical activities and is probably more safe than most of them. And uh, thanks for highlighting uh, the researcher Kramer because he does seem, I mean, I know there have been other researchers who have looked at this as well, but his work seems to be particularly important in this realm. So you Shout write about Holger. this. Yeah, exactly. Holger. Yeah. Holger Kramer. We're big fans. Um, so you clearly outlined that yoga isn't as dangerous as is often portrayed, especially like in the media. Uh, I feel like this could tie us into an important topic that you write about in your dissertation also, which is uh, the topic of nocebo which is something that some of our listeners may be familiar with, but it does seem like that's not like super common knowledge. Like many more people are familiar with placebo versus nocebo. Could you maybe talk to us about like define that term and give us some examples? Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. We hope you're enjoying getting to hear from Matt and the valuable perspective he's sharing with our community as both a longtime yoga teacher and someone who's earned a master's degree in exercise science. Remember that you can order Matt and his co-author Andrew McGonigal's brand new book, The Physiology of Yoga, on Amazon, and the link to that is in the show notes. Matt's science-based perspective on yoga and movement really overlaps with Travis's and my own. And the Strength for Yoga remote group training program that Travis and I created is rooted in this evidence-based perspective. Join us for a smart, fun strength program designed to support both your yoga practice and your whole life in general. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program or in any of the other memberships on my website. Learn more and sign up at JennyRawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. And now back to our episode. But it does seem like that's not like super common knowledge. Like many more people are familiar with placebo versus nocebo. Could you maybe talk to us about like define that term and give us some examples? Yeah. They would be familiar with it, with it if they read Jenny Rowling's articles <laughs> in, on her blog. <laughs> Honestly, that's, that's, on, that's where listeners. I first heard about it. That's where you first heard about it was one of my articles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, this is well this... before my dis- my master's, right? So this is probably like, I don't know, five years ago or something. Yeah, I and I was like, oh my it. God, this is a thing. So as I share it now, maybe someone else's mind will light up and realize, oh, this is a thing. 
<laughs> okay, so as you said, we, we know that placebo response. Mm -hmm. um, and placebo comes from Latin, from the uh, Latin placare, which means to appease or to please. And so placebo is a first person conjugation. So it literally means I will appease or I will please. Wow. And the placebo effect is, is basically the effect that we see, a positive effect from an inert substance. So, you know, I, I was talking about the randomized controlled trials before. And this is seen all the time in, in randomized controlled trials where you give someone a sugar pill or a starch pill. And, you know, starch is found everywhere. It's found in your broccoli. And so it's not going to have any effect on your body, really. And yet people take this pill and feel better. <laughs> their right. symptoms decrease, their back pain goes away or whatever. And so that's called the placebo response. And the placebo effect is basically the, the difference between the placebo and no treatment, right? So the placebo effect. Right. So then right. we have the nocebo, which comes from Latin nocere or nocere. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And that, and that is to harm. So nocebo is the first person conjugation, literally meaning I will harm. And what we see here is someone is given a sugar pill uh, or starch pill. So they're given a placebo and they start having negative uh, feelings mm -hmm. They start or, or negative symptoms, um, mm -hmm. adverse events. So some of the most common ones are headaches, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dizziness, tingling in the hands, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not like taking a pill is going to cause you to, to break a bone or something like that, right? right? right. But it can have these, these huge psychological effects on the body. And here's, here's a really interesting statistic from Benedetti, I think 2007, that, that was a systematic review on nocebo, on the nocebo effect. And they found that one out of five patients in a placebo group had to drop out of the trial because of intolerance to the drug. Okay. So let me, let me spell out what that means. So in other words, you're in a placebo group, right? So you're getting a sugar pill or starch pill or something, and you have to drop out because you, your symptoms, your side effects are so bad. And yet, you know, you're taking nothing. And that happens to one out of five, 20% of people drop out of studies according to this systematic review because of their because of the the symptoms that result of uh, because of this nocebo and we've had lots of other interesting studies that look at the nocebo response or or the pain response in relation to expectation like mm -hmm. one that um i i cited in my dissertation is people with low back pain being shown an image of someone stooping over to pick something up, to, to pick up a suitcase, for example. So they rounded their back and they bent. So this is, so first of all, I should say, okay, <laughs> you had, um, I think it was 11 people with low back pain, 11 people without back pain. They were put into an MRI and they were shown images. One image was just a man standing next to a suitcase and for everyone, there was basically no response. They didn't feel anything and the, nothing really lit up in their brain outside of just looking at a picture, right? No feelings. Uh, and then the next image they showed was this man stooping over to pick up this suitcase. So back rounded. <laughs> and what's fascinating wow. is all, 
So 100% of the people with low back pain experience discomfort in their body upon oh being God. shown this image. And I think it was uh, four or more experienced actual back pain. So not just feeling uncomfortable, but actual back pain just by being shown this image versus the control group, people with, without the back pain, they basically had no response. And they were lying in an MRI machine, so they weren't moving. Yes, exactly. They were not moving. No, not at all. And then finally, because Whoa. they were in an MRI, the scientists were able to look at what was happening in the brain and the pathways that you would expect to light up for pain did light up for the people uh, with chronic nonspecific low back pain, but it didn't light up for the people without back pain. So images can create pain or, or expectations of pain. There, there have been other really interesting studies where people are put into a sham stimulator. So think of like a, a 1960s hairdryer, you know, that you go to the, <laughs> the, the hairdresser for and they put this head hairdryer over your head. So there have been studies where they put that over a person's head, they show them a knob, you know, like from oh. one to 10, and they turn up the knob <laughs> and they say, we're going to stimulate your brain. And people have to stop the study or they, or they leave with headaches, but it's all sham. Like nothing is connected. There's no electricity going through. It's purely our expectation. So those things can be seen as a, our nocebo response, our, our expectation to pain and how it translates to pain. And this is, you know, that idea of it's all in your head, but actually this is translating into the body. Like these people are really feeling pain and, and adverse right. effects. So the idea of it's in your head is, is it's kind of dismissing that, but we need to appreciate that people in pain and these potential triggers to pain create real genuine pain in those people. Right. So I, I tied this to yoga in, in that I, I, I looked at language and how our language mm -hmm. might have a nocebo inciting response. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and because also there have been plenty of studies which have, which have connected language to to creating more pain in people like for example you can put an electric stimulus on someone on their finger and you can uh, so there have been studies where you show them words as you give them this this small electrical stimulus such a, a if it's a general word neutral word like cloud uh flower you know they they tend to record a certain number but then if you put a, a different word in front of them like burning painful <laughs> or sizzling they record a higher feeling of pain in their body. And that's just wow. through reading a word, right? Wow. So, so we can very much uh, conclude that language can have the effect of, of increasing the pain, of increasing pain in people and having these, these, these really strange effects of, 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 even, of potentially having symptoms that you wouldn't have normally. So yeah. Um, this can be tied to yoga in, in the language that we use. So should we go there? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And you write so well about this in the dissertation. Yeah, oh, thank you. So first of all, the reason I, I chose to do this, this topic was, was because of me observing and hearing these things um, in classes and through yoga teacher trainings, through other yoga teachers. So things like um, bending your back in a forward fold can herniate mm -hmm. your disc, mm -hmm. for example. Um, your, your spine, if you flex and extend it too many times, can snap like a credit card, or sometimes mm -hmm. the image might be of a twig. <laughs> right. Uh, 
and then um, all uh, forward folds cause hamstring tendinopathy. No, they yes. they they might. So, and that this is this is complex because they might contribute to the hamstring tendinopathy, but we cannot say for certain that they cause the hamstring tendinopathy or the commonly termed yoga butt, right? Right. Uh, so other claims also like back bends can can ruin your back or rupture discs. Uh, mm -hmm. And this one is a controversial one. The foot on the knee in tree pose mm -hmm. can damage your knee. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're never supposed to put your foot on your knee. That's bad. Yeah, exactly. And I did a little trick like you did. You know how you did the bathroom scales once? So I put yes, that, Travis I gave put me that, that idea. <laughs> I, I put that between my knee and my foot, and I measured how much force was going oh, into my knee. Smart. And it was between, I'm here in the UK, so it was in kilos. So it was between 12 and 20 kilos of force. And it was even like pushing. Uh, so it'd be like, I don't know, what, 30, 40 pounds or something. And if you think about the amount of force that would go through your knee, so we could say various force, going through your knee as you're cutting, or in other words, like changing direction quickly, like soccer players would do a lot of, right? That's gonna be your whole body weight. So for me, like 70 kilos, 160 pounds, whatever, going through the knee basically in that, in that horizontal direction to change my direction to go the opposite way, right? So, oh. I, you know, biomechanics is not my specialty. I'm not Jules Mitchell here, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, th I think we can just with common sense figure out the amount of force going through the knee is much less than through other physical activities. And then also you can make the argument that putting a small amount of force like that will make the knee ligament stronger. And there are certain other poses like side plank, which is going mm -hmm. to also put various force through the knee, especially if we place the foot you know, into tree pose while we're doing a side plank. Because side plank so, is loading in that same plane. It's loading yeah. in the frontal plane, just like treat pose on the knee. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be applying that lateral force. Yeah, putting right. Putting some stress onto the lateral collateral ligament. That's, a, that's an interesting... So if you go into side plank and go into tree leg with the top leg, that, that would be a pose that some people yeah, would do, right? Yeah, that's taught, yeah. So it doesn't, like matter what, doesn't matter in that case whether your foot is on the knee or above the knee. Either way, <laughs> you're creating varus force, which is the knee bowing out. Yeah. That's so because, because the the anchor point of your foot is going to push the foot that way. And then the or the the plant leg foot is going to be, you know, against the ground. And then the tree leg is going to be on the thigh and you're going to bow the leg out, even though the foot isn't on the knee. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you're applying that various force, that force onto the knee. So, but that's okay for some reason. Right. Travis, is it the same in tree, in regular standing up tree, if you put your foot like above or below the knee, it's not the same? Not, not as much just because, not as much because the, there's just no, there's no lateral force at the foot in the, when you're standing vertically. As oh, that makes, as there would be inside. You're our resident biomechanics expert. Thank you for explaining that. <laughs> so in tree, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That that difference. Yeah, but that's, I think that's one of many examples where there's an inconsistency where people will point out like, oh, that that's bad. But then you're doing that exact same thing in some <laughs> other pose and nobody worries about it. Like we talked about with shoulder stand and plow. 
Right. It's like, well, nobody talks about plow being dangerous, yet plow's just this exaggerated shoulder stand. It's like more than shoulder stand. And um, for the record, I I do feel like I sometimes have heard some fear mongering around plow, but I've heard much more about shoulder stand. And that's the one that I see banned, you know, but plow is shoulder stand times more, like more, more force and more loads in those same directions people are concerned about. Yeah. And if someone has tighter hamstrings, uh, that would that would cause their spine to even be in more flexion, probably, and put, I would say right. probably even more load in a flexion <laughs> direction. Right. <laughs> so it's just so inconsistent. Anterior. I mean, we could make this huge long list of all these inconsistencies in yoga, where they're like, "Don't do this," but then you actually see the exact same biomechanical action or something super similar happening in a different pose, but nobody warns about it. And yet maybe it's partly Matt due to a lack of, of high quality anatomy and physiology education for yoga teachers. You know, like if we yeah. don't understand movement and biomechanics, even on a foundational level, like it doesn't have to be advanced, but just understanding movement, how load is applied to the body in different directions that it's applied just that. I mean, if that were taught in like yoga teacher trainings, I think that'll, and, and pairing that with the idea with uh, not the idea, but the understanding of the laws about how our tissues adapt to load in order to become stronger. Like you pointed out in the beginning of this episode, Matt, with Davis's law and there's Wolf's law for bone too. But it's like, if those two concepts were just taught in all teacher trainings, like the adaptability of our body and, and how to understand load being applied to the body. Like, I feel like that would change a lot about some of these potentially problematic fear-based curing that we hear. Yeah, it would, not just amongst yoga teachers. It would it would change the world <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, people with arthritis they need to be loading their body too. And in That's fact, you're right. going to have so many studies have have found that exercise loading the body decreases symptoms of arthritis. So, yep. and one in five people with arthritis don't do their requirements of exercise. You know, they don't do their 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise and two days of, of strength training per week. And in fact, and they're the same as the general population, only about 20% of us in both the US and the UK follow those exercise guidelines. <laughs> and, right. and with arthritis, I can understand, like someone thinks, oh, I need to protect myself, but it, it is the opposite. Like not only will exercise and loading your body make you feel better, but it will actually help uh, prevent any possible tissue damage or, you know, damage to the cartilage, or it can actually uh, improve the cartilage. And arthritis is a, a, basically has to do with the inflammation of the cartilage and potentially wearing down of it. But our bodies are not like cars, you know, where the best thing to do with a car is basically just to not drive it and preserve it. But our bodies actually respond really well to, to stress in a controlled way. You know, it's what Nicholas Salem Taleb, I think his name is, he coined the term um, anti-fragile because our bodies mm. are not just robust, which is the opposite of fragile because robust, if it, if it has too much of a beating, it'll still break and be irreparably damaged. Whereas our bodies are anti-fragile, you know, in that the more we do, the more adapted we become. You know, this is why Olympic athletes can uh, do, can train twice a day in the morning and in the evening. For most of us, that would, for me, that would, cause injury and, and I'd be inflamed and all these sorts of things, right? But if I built up to it progressively, I mm-hmm. probably could get there. Yeah. So yeah, this the idea of adaptation or specific adaptations to impose demands is a really important concept to understand. And pretty much 
everyone needs to be exercising. And this is uh, mm -hmm. another part of my, my dissertation. And I should say my, my dissertation was a coaching research, resource, which then became a workshop for yoga teachers, which I, I, I have produced and it's, it's on my website and we can talk about that later. But, um, and I talk about the, the importance of exercise for people with all kinds of chronic conditions. And there's plenty mm -hmm. of really good research showing that actually exercise should be prescribed as medicine with only a few rare instances of, of rest being needed. For example, someone with a very acute injury. Right? Right. So they've, they've just been in a, a car accident, you know, in the recently, obviously, or someone with um, cancer on chemotherapy mm -hmm. and an active infection. They might mm -hmm. need some some rest. But in, in most other cases, including what we associate with older age, like arthritis, these people, all of us need to be strengthening, training. And so the good news as yoga teachers, we'll, all, we'll always have jobs. <laughs> right. It is needed. You need to keep training people and personal trainers. And it, it's, it's all so valuable. And I used to see a distinction between fitness and yoga or you know personal training and yoga and that sort of thing. Yeah. And now I just think, get people moving strengthening is the best thing they can do it is incredible not just for your body but for your sleep your cognition your decreased risk factors for cardiovascular disease cancer it's incredible but the the what we have as a gift to offer people movement and exercise is is like a miracle cure honestly <laughs> absolutely thank you so much for emphasizing that i think that is a huge message that uh really can have profound impact and it's it's sad and very disappointing that uh, I think you said one in five or 20% of just the general population actually meets the recommended uh, minimum for exercise. Yeah, it has so much potential to support us and improve health. And like you said, cognition and just and um, psychosocial factors as well. Like there's just so much there. So yeah, we have such an amazing tool in our hands with something like yoga. So it's just unfortunate when something like yoga is just portrayed as being this like dangerous activity that people should avoid because if anything it seems like that's potentially creating more barriers to uh, a movement practice that many people i mean it's it's of course i'm i've never been like every single person should do yoga i definitely don't think that like people should do the activity that resonates for them and that they feel drawn to whatever that is but uh, a lot of people do find a ton of um you know, satisfaction and meaning in yoga and are super drawn to it. So I think it has a lot of power that way to really yeah. motivate people. It's it's frustrating when people put, like you said, put up barriers, un, especially unnecessary barriers yeah. to things like when they say that activities like yoga or running are dangerous and are guaranteed to cause you injury and pain. And that we already know that people don't exercise enough or move enough yes. as it is. And so now you're just putting one more like wall mm -hmm. up uh, or try, you know, discouraging people from getting active when inactivity is more of a risk factor for the, you know, early death or disease than doing yes. an activity with a low risk of injury. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is like my, my message to the world, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, like get people moving. We, we definitely need to get more active and it's, it's just incredible and the risk to benefit ratio is 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 outrageous in terms of like the risk of injury or adverse events with not just yoga but 
physical activity in general is so right. low in comparison to its, yeah. its benefits. And if you want to, if you want to <laughs> feel better about teaching yoga, I recommend you watch things like Cheer on Netflix, where these girls are jumping, you know, 30 <laughs> feet into the air, being caught doing like crazy somersaults and handsprings. Like they don't just do wheel pose. They bounce out of wheel pose right. and then back up onto the feet and keep, or watch Home Game, another another documentary where these uh, people do these uh, calcio storico, historic um, soccer it's called in Florence, Italy. And they literally beat each other up <laughs> well, someone runs with a football to throw it into the goal. <laughs> oh my I mean, those, God. yeah, those are like really high risk activities. And yet people are still doing them, you know? And then when you look at yoga, it's like, oh my gosh, we just, how could tree pose be dangerous? <laughs> You're just bouncing oh up my God. You know, could we actually uh, just, you mentioned a couple of specific claims that we tend to hear a lot in the yoga world uh, that you would suggest are nocebos. And well, like you mentioned tree and we kind of talked about that one, but there were the one that I was hoping we could go into a little bit more was the uh, proximal hamstring tendinopathy that you had mentioned that like there's been, I have seen tons of claims about this, including a really uh, widely read article that was in the Huffington Post several years ago that was called, it was called Stop Stretching Your Hamstrings. That was like the title of it. Like talk about how negative, like what a negative message that is. But in that article, the author actually made several claims and connected to, for, connected forward folds to disc herniations, but was really talking about you. You're showing it to us, right? Oh, it's on your slide. It's, I love it. my slideshow. You can't see, if you're listening to this, you can't see this, but Matt just showed us a slideshow from, or a slide from his slideshow on all of this. And it's featuring this exact, an image from this exact article. Travis, I don't know if you've seen, I'll have to send this to you if you haven't seen it. Stop stretching your hamstrings in the Huffington Post. But um, but the author fear-mongered about uh, herniating discs from forward folds, intervertebral disc, but also um, that it gives us proximal hamstring tendinopathy, which just in case some listeners don't know what that is, that would be like pain, and correct me if I'm defining this incorrectly, but pain felt at the very top of the hamstrings muscles where they attach to the sitting bone, the ischial tuberosity. So that high, it, that's why it's called yoga butt. It's like that high hamstring pain up in the butt, basically. And in the yoga world, we have this idea that it's very prevalent among yogis and that it's caused by the, all the forward folds that we do in yoga. I, um, I think you got you guys have heard similar messaging, right? Like that's so. So then it, it can kind of scare people away from stretching in general and a yoga practice uh, as well. So and Matt, you wrote about this in your dissertation. Could you maybe elaborate on on this a bit? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so I can I can share a quote from that article that you're talking about if you'd like. Yes, please. <laughs> um, so. The author says, um, this is a direct quote, many people injure their spine and lower backs, tear or inflame hamstring tendon attachments, and even rupture discs doing stretches such as seated and standing forward bends in yoga. <laughs> After that, I'm scared to do a forward fold, you know? Totally. I'm not bending over ever again. <laughs> <laughs> not even That's to pick so anything up. <laughs> Okay, and then, you know, I've, I've seen other things. And in, in my slideshow, I also picked up a, a comment from Instagram. The comment section of Instagram is always a great place to hang out <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, fine, fine. And, and this person says, who's a really well-known yoga, yoga teacher, says, when the sits bones lift away from the floor in 
the forward bend, the stretch goes into the hamstring attachments, which has caused many injuries, the dreaded yoga butt. Keeping the sit bones down keeps the stretch in the belly of the hamstrings. That's great. I think that's very commonly believed in the yoga world. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, there's this claim that yoga causes yoga butt or this proximal hamstring tendinopathy. Okay. So if you're making a claim, this is an empirical claim, then there Mm. needs to be some evidence behind it. So that's so true. What evidence do we have? So if we look back to those studies that that we mentioned at the beginning, a a lot of Kramer studies is one by Weiss et al. And on Jenny's site, she has a great article by Yari. Yeah, Carbonin. You remember. Yeah, yeah. that helped my master's, actually. That helped my (gasps) dissertation. I'm sorry. Yari will love hearing that. We'll have to tell him. (laughs) So, um, you know, he summarizes the, the literature that we have on that. And I have looked through the articles, the scientific articles that, that talk about um, the systematic reviews on, on yoga-related injuries or adverse events, and none of them mention hamstring. Mm. So mm-hmm. the people who were reporting their injuries didn't mention hamstrings. That wasn't, that wasn't a place. Forgotten. Yeah. Right. So, but then, you know, that's, I'm kidding. But that, yeah. that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. You know, that doesn't mean it doesn't right. happen, but but at least from these studies, and and of course they are retrospective and self-reported studies, which which have their flaws, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. because people forget things or they may not report things correctly, or they might be attribute an injury to yoga and it and it shouldn't have been. But anyway, right. Um, but anyway, none of these studies. So based on the scientific literature that we have on on yoga-related injuries, hamstring tendinopathy is is not that high. <laughs> on the list actually it's not, it's on the not list even at all. listed it's not however even. anecdotally i i do appreciate that it seems uh, a number of people do come into mm-hmm. or or seem to have hamstring tendinopathy proximal hamstring tendinopathy um so that doesn't mean it's not happening right but mm-hmm. basically we don't really know and as for the cause or how to remedy it we also don't know and and if, if I can read a couple of things here. Mm-hmm. So this is um, a, this is from an article in the scientific literature called Proximal Hamstring Tendinopathy, Clinical Aspects of Assessment and Management. So this is by Goom et al, 2016. And they basically looked at all the scientific literature on, on hamstring tendinopathy and, uh, and compiled uh, what they thought were, were uh, the things that we need to know as clinicians, or so basically this is really targeted at physiotherapists, for example. And so here's what they found. First of all, the cause of proximal hamstring, hamstring tendinopathy involves many factors. Right. <laughs> so already just there. In other words, how you stretch is not going to cause it in itself, right? It has many factors. Mm-hmm. One known factor is increasing training volume or intensity too quickly, which that's not surprising, the too much too soon injury, right? And so, yeah, if someone goes from doing no yoga at all to yoga two times a day, that is <laughs> a lot really quickly, too much too soon. And so this is why I'm not surprised when yoga students on a teacher training say, you know, why did I get injured right. in a teacher training? Because I'm doing yoga every day, like I shouldn't get injured. But actually, it's because you've probably gone from doing 
yoga once a week to now twice mm -hmm. a day mm -hmm. and you're putting a lot of load through the hamstring tendons you know mm -hmm. when hamstrings or when ten tendons are tensioned they don't know if they're being tensioned because you're doing uh, good morning exercise at uh, at the gym <laughs> or you're doing uh, surya namaskar sun salutations right they just know that they're being tensioned so um absolutely yoga might be a a contributing factor for someone who's who's doing too much too soon. Okay, so that's one of the things that the authors found, and a, a couple other things. They know one. Um, uh, pardon me. It is it is not known. They say if stretching is a factor, and they expect they, they say this specifically. It is not known. It is not known if stretching is a factor, and also PHT hamstring tendinopathy is fairly common amongst runners but okay. also occurs in sedentary people. Mm. <laughs> That's the funny mm. thing. So you Keep can get sit. hamstring tendinopathy being a runner, but you can also get it just sitting down and doing nothing. Right? <laughs> so prevalence among yoga practitioners basically is unknown. So yeah, we have the anecdotal yeah. suggestions that it might happen more in yoga and maybe it does. And honestly, we need more, more research on the matter, but it's, I would say pretty much impossible that one small thing, like whether you have your your flesh of the buttocks underneath you or not, is going to be the, the, the thing that affects whether you develop this hamstring tendinopathy or not, you know? And it, it could very much be a matter of too much too soon. You might, maybe you need to tone it down, reduce your, your mm -hmm. uh, forward folds, yeah? Reduce your hamstring stretches. And you, someone can certainly make the argument that we do a heck of a lot of hamstring stretching and not strengthening of the hamstrings mm -hmm. or not not equal stretching of of other muscles like we don't really stretch our quadriceps that much in yoga <laughs> yeah but we do a lot of hamstring stretching so the point is that i think there's a lot of nuance to this argument and it's not as simple as uh do this one small trick and your <laughs> hamstring tendinopathy will go away or it will never happen and we just don't have the evidence to support that claim. Um, and as, as you say, sadly, it, it can create fear in people. So uh, yeah. let's just be cautious with our language. Just get people moving and do things if they feel good. Don't do it if it doesn't feel good kind of thing. The, can you speak to that fear a little bit? So someone reads that article. They are convinced that this is stretching their hamstrings is going to cause them this injury uh like what are the ramifications of that yeah mm. so yeah and and this is this is where maybe the the nocebo effect can mm -hmm. take a hold you know mm -hmm. and so when we have expectations of pain or not of pain this can have physiological effects and physiological processes can occur so for example when we feel good when we're happy we're exercising we get a release of built-in painkillers um, known as uh, endogenous opioids. You, you've probably heard of endorphins. So this, this, this hormone or neurotransmitter that's associated with exercise and feeling good. And what's really interesting is that's short for endogenous morphine. Endorphins is endogenous, so built inside the body, morphine. <laughs> no and morphine is pretty much the, the same chemical structure as heroin, street heroin. <laughs> so what's fascinating wow. is we have these this uh, 
uh, drug cabinet in our brain, releasing mm -hmm. the right amount of hormones and neurotransmitters when needed. And an increase in our expectations can increase the, the positive ones or, or increase the negative ones. So uh, these, these uh, neurotransmitters, such as also serotonin, will uh, reduce pain signals in the body or nociceptive signals, I should say, that would be a better way of saying it. And so if someone has decreased serotonin, which is a known to be associated with depression, you will mm -hmm. receive more input into your central nervous system, more nociceptive input, and you're more likely to, to interpret general sensations as pain. And an extreme right. example of this, it's called, I think it's complex regional pain syndrome, where it develops that just the, uh, the brush of a feather on someone's arm can create searing pain. It's because the body uh, has, uh, has kind of a, 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 had a, a little faulty mechanism in how it interprets, interprets sensations. So our expectations can affect our, mm -hmm. uh, our release of hormones and, and the, the sensations that we feel in our body. So does that kind of answer that question? Yeah. So I think people will, could, could experience pain where they otherwise might not have, mm -hmm. or could avoid doing something at the, because they're, they're fearful of creating that pain when they, that's unnecessary. So like maybe, maybe their hamstrings didn't hurt before when they were forward folding, but now that they know that this is a guarantee, a foregone conclusion that if they forward fold, they're going to develop this proximal hamstring tendinopathy, now they start experiencing They're like pain. primed to feel, feel pain there. Yes. Yeah. And you guys are touching on something known as kinesiophobia, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Kinesis being movement, phobia, fear. And so mm -hmm. if we tell someone, don't do this, this will injure you, it can, it can foster kinesiophobia in a person. And there was a really interesting study by Lack et al. in 2015, finding that kinesiophobic beliefs can rub off onto others. So they basically had um, physiotherapists and they found which physiotherapists were more kinesiophobic, so more cautious with their language, who would say, be careful doing this, don't lift too much, you know, that, that sort of thing. Don't, you don't want to wear and tear your body. Those are all kinesiophobic beliefs. So they took a group of kinesiophobic physiotherapist students and non-kinesiophobic physiotherapy, physical therapy students. And they basically just had those students then just guide a client, a made up client in a lifting task. They just said, okay, lift as much as you can onto this table. <laughs> and basically what the researchers found is that kinesiophobic beliefs rub off. So mm. the clients of the kinesiophobic physios lifted 32 kilos onto a table, whereas the non-kinesiophobic physios guided their clients to lift uh, close to 40 kilos right so wow. a substantial difference and this is yeah this is you know normalized for age and sex and all that sort of thing and so the the kinesiophobic physios physical therapists guiding kinesiophobic clients had the lowest lifts which is not surprising <laughs> so if you get someone in your class who's already a bit afraid to move a bit afraid to do flexion mm -hmm. and then you're also afraid to do flexion between the two of you you you're more <laughs> likely to to create these kinesiophobic beliefs and and create fear which which actually can potentially lead to more injury that's like the the cycle fear avoidance belief what's it called but it's it like mm -hmm. returns on itself 
So the yep, more fearful fear. are, you are, the less you do, the less you yep. do, potentially the more pain you feel and that it just goes back and around, around, around. Exactly. The, the fear avoidance model of pain, I think it's called. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it can have this um, glue effect. That's really profound, I think, for yoga teachers. Mm-hmm. And, and granted, we're extrapolating, like you said, research on physiotherapists and patients right. to a yoga context. But I think it's it's safe to say that your beliefs as the yoga teacher will affect the your students' experiences and also maybe their beliefs if they're, especially if they're repeat students, you know, students right. that you're interacting with often. So you have to be mindful of that. And if you're spreading these sorts of messages that they can have negative effects. I think there's Mm -hmm. also the level of a yoga teacher teaching to a group class, like a whole group of students versus like a yoga student coming up to their yoga teacher after class or before class and saying like, oh, hey, I'm having this, I'm experiencing this pain. And I think we know that a lot of like the general public do see yoga teachers as like an authority on the body. And some of them even like blur these lines and think of them as healthcare practitioners, which they're not like yoga teachers are not, but I, I see these lines. Yeah. Kind of yoga, in the yoga students world. all the time ask yoga teachers about pain issues that they're having in their yeah. body. And yoga teachers will, in my experience, when I've been witness to this, yoga teachers will often give advice, give advice in yeah. those situations. Sometimes it's, sometimes the advice is fine. And sometimes the advice is maybe not as fine. And when it's like the yoga teacher trying to diagnose or treat that pain, like uh, this is what you have, you know, or what, you know, that that's seem that's crossing a line, but in the sense that that yoga students could, could look up to a teacher as an authority in a similar way. And again, we're, I'm kind of drawing a, like, we don't, we don't really have evidence to support that yoga teachers can necessarily change yoga students beliefs, but I, I just think they're different levels. Yeah. There's a level of the group class, and then there's a level of a single student talking to a teacher specifically about their problem. But both situations would be instances where yoga teachers' beliefs could mm-hmm. rub off on their students. Yeah. It seems possible. Then, yeah. But then that leads us to the question of what do yoga teachers do? What should they say? Should we go there? <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> and, yeah. I, and this is where I, I, I go towards the end of my of my. This is uh, great of my dissertation and my, my workshop for yoga teachers, because you think, okay, I know what I shouldn't say. And I, I know to, to be careful about using fear-based language, but what can I say? Yes, and absolutely. I would say one of the first things is, is just say less. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, we're, we're there. Think of what we're there to do, our scope of practice. We are there to guide movement. And that's it, right? That's right? So all you have to do, basically, on, a, on the most basic level, you say triangle pose. Cool. Great job. Evolve triangle. <laughs> and basically let people self-organize. And I'm not saying that's not the only thing you should do, but we, there's no problem in using reassuring language yeah. and you know, encouraging people. And as, as yoga teachers, I think we should be like the number one cheerleader for the people in the room in front of us, you know? And yeah, you know, if someone's having pain, trust that they will know to back it off, back off, you know, and unless you are physically manipulating that person, you Mm. are not causing an injury to them by suggesting that they do a pose like wild thing. You are just offering that suggestion. I think it can be very wise to 
to offer other options also. Like if this post isn't right for you, go for another one, right? But we can we can say the same thing or something similar without inputting that that fear-based language. Um, and and there's nothing wrong with being positive, you know, saying positive things and encouraging in, inform people that you know basically all musculoskeletal injuries resolve themselves. Like ninety percent of low back pain resolves itself within six weeks. That's a nice statistic to know. And yeah, you know, take it easy a bit today, but see how you go. I, I really like what you said about saying less. Jenny has a good, I, I don't know where this is, if it's on YouTube or whatever, but the yoga teachers will say dorsiflex your ankle in pigeon to protect your knee, right? Oh, right. And, and well, you don't, need to, you don't need to do that. It just doesn't. It doesn't protect your knee. Not doesn't matter. Um, and then yoga teachers will say, well, what should I say instead? Say less. Yeah, just if say you nothing. want people to dorsiflex their ankle, dorsiflex their ankle. Go go to town. It doesn't matter. But like, just leave off the to protect the knee part because we don't have to say that. We don't have to create that you know little thing mm -hmm. in the back of somebody's mind where oh, I need to do something to protect something else. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's one of the things in that I that I say to not say like to protect such and such a body part. Mm -hmm. Like you can tell people to engage their abs. Yeah. And it might be a good idea if you're doing something like a handstand or a backband, right? Or drop back. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't need but then take off to protect your back. Yes. <laughs> engage your to abs protect to protect your, spine. your back. Right. Because yeah. it creates this, oh well my back needs protecting. My back is mm. fragile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, sadly, going back to the, the how I mentioned qualitative research, there's a really great study by Ben Darlow et al. 2013. Um, he looked at the, the language that uh, clinicians, the in, enduring impact of language that clinicians have on their, on their patients. And uh, there's one, you know, anonymous person, a lady with chronic nonspecific low back pain. And she says... Um, Basically, I've, I've been told by physiotherapists and Pilates teachers, she specifically said Pilates, that I have a ridiculously weak core and I need to keep working my core. And trigger warning about abortion. She said, I actually had an abortion because I didn't believe I, I could hold the weight. I couldn't hold a baby because I've been told my core is so weak. And that is, uh. yeah, that's really sad. And that is very much an, the end of the spectrum, you know? And then, mm -hmm. It's extreme. But but that that does show that definitely our words can have an effect, and so I think yoga teachers want to be on the safe side. But if you want to be on the safe side, you know, and so so they're saying things like to protect your knee, to protect your back. But actually, if you want to be on the safe side, just avoid saying those things. Just get people exactly. moving, let them trust their bodies, give them options, and remember that you are there to suggest movement to people. Mm -hmm. And the more you know, the more that the better you do, you know, we learn more and, and we do better, I think. And, and even you, you've talked about this on another one of your articles, Jenny, about pushing into pain. And actually the oh, research yeah. shows that, that um, people who push into pain during exercise don't have greater pain in general. So their, 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 their basis of pain, their base level of pain does not increase as a result of pushing into painful exercise. And in fact, it tends to decrease in general, right? right. Now, they, we're getting onto a fine line here of, of mm -hmm. you know, should I encourage people to push through pain? And, you know, that, that's a very fine line. And 
but at the same time, I, I think it's important to know that even if someone experiences strong sensations or which can go towards pain, that's not even necessarily a bad thing. Right. But yeah, obviously that's, that's a very fine line and that's very nuanced and that yes. that's really a case by case basis, but it's, 100%. but it's, it's much simpler than if you feel any pain, stop. <laughs> that's right. And creating, a, sorry, go on Travis. <laughs> there was a study a couple of years ago on hamstring rehab, hamstring strain injuries. They had one group uh, push into a little bit of pain and one group not. They were hoping to find that the group that pushed into pain would get better faster. Um, but they found no difference between the two groups. Basically, mm -hmm. the, the two groups returned to sport at the same rate, uh, whether they pushed into a little bit of pain or not. So that just goes to show that it was safe or it was there was no downside to exercising into a little bit of pain. It was like a four out of 10, maybe. Um, mm -hmm. And again, like this is that was different from teaching a yoga class, but it just goes to show that uh, it, it's not doesn't have to be as scary as we maybe have been trained to think pain is mm, or, da or dangerous. Yeah. And a message I like to share with teachers, humans in general, <laughs> is that your body is amazing, strong, resilient, robust, anti-fragile, you know, like even your sacroiliac yeah. joint, it is really tightly held together through through its form its shape all the ligaments that hold it together your spine is really strong and you mean it it's doesn't not, the si joint's not out of place <laughs> it, it doesn't go twisted. out my pelvis is twisted oh my god <laughs> yeah, exactly even the knee joint where yeah we do see more injuries in the knee joint but even still that's still a, a strong structure and right. loading it exercise and all that sort of thing can can help make it stronger so let's not be fearful of the body, trust the body, and also let people make their own decisions. They are, after all, mm -hmm. the authority over their own body about how much they want. To I, I really, I, I value that. And I think that we can give people more information and let people decide as yeah. opposed to, well, I'm just trying to keep my people safe. So I'm not going to let them do X, Y, or Z. It's like, no, let people know, educate them, let people know the value, the, the risks, the benefits, and then let them decide for themselves. Yeah. Right. If they never them. did anything risky, we wouldn't have the, the limbo queen. You can Google her. She can, <laughs> she can limbo under a car carrying two trays oh, of coffee. Right? So we, we wouldn't have circus. <laughs> we wouldn't have cheerleading. If people did nothing risky, we wouldn't have skiing. We wouldn't have handstands. You know, handstands and, and the, the Kramer research and all those other people, they did find handstands did have a higher risk of injury. I think you guys talked about that too on your injury. I think we episode. did, yeah. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Like, just because something has a higher risk that, that needs to be considered with the benefits of it. Like, it's amazing balancing in handstand. I definitely want to teach more people to do that, even though I, I know the risk. <laughs> but it's so true. It's so true. There's, I think there's so much value in practicing something fun like handstand, not to say that everyone should do it, but there's so much um, confidence building and empowering and it's fun. And I think we know there's a lot of inherent value when we treat moving in a way that is fun and playful, like perhaps more learning happens and there can even be more benefits that we glean from, you know, being super serious about everything. But in any case, I think this is a really great way that you kind of wrap up your presentation and you do rather than just telling everyone, you know, what you'd recommend they don't do, you can actually end on something positive. And as you're educating people about like our words can be powerful as yoga teachers, and we kind of focus on how they might be powerful in that negative way. But on the flip side, 
one way we potentially could help people is by being positive in our words. So we can kind of direct, you know, maybe the effects that they have on people in an intentional manner when we understand some of these, some of these broader concepts. So I wonder, Matt, with your, with your um, coaching resource that you created that your dissertation is based on, is that, uh, is that something that you offer? Like, do you teach that online? Could you drop into people's, other people's teacher training programs and offer that, like if people were interested? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, a three hour course. So my dissertation was basically the proposal for this workshop for this three hour course. And then I've, and now I've made that course into fruition. Um, I, so I offered online sometimes um, and I recorded, uh, I recorded it online and it's available on my website for sale for 25 pounds. So oh, I'm wow, people in, can buy it. Cool. Yeah. So I'm here in the United Kingdom, so we do pounds. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, for, for 25 pounds, I, it's an online recording of that workshop. Um, it's about three hours in length. My, my website is matthewhooey.com. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm on Instagram as yoga with Matt. Um, so I, you can find links to it there. Yeah, and we'll put um, links to all this in the show notes so people can refer there to. Cool. To, that's yeah. okay. So you do. Uh, oh, sorry. And that's uh, so it's it's targeted right now as a continuing education module for yoga teachers who are already, you know, they've already done a 200 hour. Yes. Yeah. Like, is that yeah. The it background is. knowledge that you're assuming. Yeah. Yeah. But it could also be tied into a teacher training towards the Got end it. of the teacher training. Yes. But you you do need to know a tendon from a ligament. So it's so you know you need to have some right. basic knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> I think any yoga teacher training program, whether it's the 200 hour or like the 500 hour level, I think any of them would be super lucky to have you, Matt. Either you like live present this or to incorporate the recorded course, but I just I think something you point out in your dissertation is like everything we've talked about today, this whole concept of like fear-based language and the potential negative effects it could have. That's not, that doesn't seem to be a required um, topic to be included in yoga teacher training programs, at least by these bodies like the Yoga Alliance and there's IAYT, International Association of Yoga Therapists is another one, but it seems like these general bodies that kind of dictate their recommendations for yoga teacher training, it doesn't seem that this actually very important topic is, um, is prescribed to be included. So like your course really fills, uh, fills a need and a hole out there. Yeah, I, I don't know anything like it. Uh, mm -hmm. My colleague, Andrew McGonagall, who I love, mm -hmm. shout out to Andrew, <laughs> and he's brilliant. He has a, a similar course on language, but his is uh, for yoga teachers about language, but it's mo focused more on using gender neutral language. Um, oh, I've seen and... him talk about some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, and in inclusive language, um, making mm -hmm. yoga more accessible and that sort of thing. Um, so we both uh, think about language, but in a different way, like mine more towards like injuries, beliefs, fear, and then his towards, you know, more inclusivity. Um, but and otherwise, there are some resources for, for like physical therapists, but, um, but I, I don't know of anything like this for yoga teachers. And, you know, my, my hope, my aim <laughs> is to make yoga teachers feel more confident to go out and help people because like it is such an incredible thing that yoga can offer to people to the world and yeah. if we're just stilted with fear then we can't be offering the our best service so 
100%. Yeah, so I, I hope that people go about the world with less fear as a result of, of learning with me or somewhere else or just learning on your own. <laughs> and as much as your three-hour uh, course fills this hole or this obvious need in the yoga world, another thing that you're involved in that I also feel fills a hole and a need in the yoga world is is the book that you co-wrote with Andrew, who you just mentioned a moment ago, but the two of you have written this brand new book that just released called The Physiology of Yoga. I mentioned it back in the intro, but um, Travis and I have both had a chance. We've been lucky enough to preview it and it's beautiful and so thorough, super cited. Actually, I counted this morning before we got on. I wanted to see how many citations you included in it. And it's like over 130 scientific references that you included in your book. The physiology oh, wow. of yoga. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I didn't. To, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just we were talking earlier about like a, a lot of common maybe yoga anatomy textbooks. And this isn't anatomy. This is physiology. But a lot of common like yoga anatomy or physiology books that yoga teacher training programs prescribe, like the biggies in the yoga world these days. Aside from Jules Mitchell's um, Yoga Biomechanics, which is about stretching. Aside from that, they don't. And you mentioned that Bernie does, Bernie Clark does have a book that does include citations, but the rest of them don't, it doesn't seem to be common practice. Like if you just name any of the big uh, yoga anatomy or physiology books. So I feel like your book offers and fills this big need, which is like a thorough introduction to physiology, which is different than anatomy and different than biomechanics. And then it's something that I find not to be covered in very many yoga teacher training programs, but I think, uh, you know, just a soup, at least a surface understanding of all the subsystems, subsystems of the body, how they integrate and work together as a whole um, is really valuable for really anyone with a body, but especially yoga and movement teachers. So I'm super excited about your book. I'm really glad it's available on the market. And I, I actually think, honestly, I think your book, your physiology of yoga, you're in Andrews and then Jules's yoga biomechanics, like those two, and then something that's just anatomy, like just really good, solid anatomy. Those three would be like an excellent, like trio of core, this is just my opinion, but core books for yoga teacher training programs. So thank you for writing that and putting it out there. And um, do you have, if you don't know the website in this moment, we'll just be sure to put the URL in um, the show notes so people can find your book. But do you know, Matt, where it'll be? It's it's published by Human Kinetics. Yeah, exactly. It's on so Amazon. You can get it, yeah, so you can get it through Amazon, through Human Kinetics. And we have a website. Um, to be honest, which we're building. So, You're building it. Or my 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 lovely partner says he's building. So it's um it's I think it's yogaphysiology.com. And great. Or is it physiologyofyoga.com? <laughs> Maybe you link to the show notes. We'll put it notes. in the show notes, the correct so, one. This is a <laughs> landing page. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll confuse people. So, some other person with that other URL got a few hits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really should have prepared for this. So, and it has a landing page with um, links to my website, Andrew's website, and then how to buy the book and that sort of thing. And yeah, as, as you said really well, the, the book goes through each system of the body or most mm -hmm. of the systems of the body from the musculoskeletal, the digestive. And we, we talk about the basic anatomy and physiology of that system um, and then common ailments related to it. And then also how yoga might affect that system based on the latest research. So in the cardiovascular system, we're mm -hmm. going to look at, for example, does yoga reduce blood pressure? Like, like I mentioned at the That's beginning. Right. Right. Um, and then we also have a, a really interesting sidebars of myth or fact. And we I talked about a, a common claim in yoga, such as do twists 
detoxify the body, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we look at um, the physiology and anatomy and, and, and reasoning behind that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it is a valuable addition and it, and it really uh, ties knowledge of anatomy and physiology specifically to yoga. And that's where it's, where it's unique. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really glad you guys enjoyed it. Thank you. It was a labor of love. It took a lot of time. I have a permanent imprint on the sofa of where I sat, keeping <laughs> <laughs> my dissertation. Between my dissertation, the two of them. Writing the book. At least you yeah. were comfortable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, well, thank you to you and Andrew for putting this resource together and all the work and time and effort I know you put into it. I just think it's a really valuable contribution um, to the yoga world and for all of our uh, education in general. So yeah, we recommend our audience definitely check the book out and just check uh, Matt's work out in general and this course that we've kind of talked about through this throughout this whole episode today, you can see he has a super evidence-based, positive and empowering message to share with the Mm -hmm. yoga world. And I just feel really lucky we got to talk to you about all of this today, Matt. Thank you. And then the last thing, you know, beyond my my learning also, like Google Scholar, check it out and Mm -hmm. go type Mm -hmm. in yoga injury, yoga adverse events. And I used to be scared of these scholarly articles. I remember Mm -hmm. two years ago, but (laughs) it's not as bad as you think. And there will be terms you won't recognize, especially with more complex physiology. But I do recommend that we just start reading scientific literature. And it's honestly, especially about yoga related injuries, it's really easy to read. And uh, that will only help scientific literacy like you were talking about at the beginning, Jenny. So so empower yourself. Great point. And mm-hmm. and to to what you said, it will be a little scary at first, right? Um, mm-hmm. But you get better with practice. So it's it's hard. The first few studies you read, it's new and different from what you read on the New York Times or whatever else. Yeah. Um, but you get used to it and you start to learn those words. You look up the words and then the next time you see them, they're mm-hmm. more familiar and you build more confidence and experience doing it. And then it's it becomes less scary over time. Yeah. It opens this whole world of, of information, which is incredible. You know, it's, I mean, you can learn about yourself by learning about anatomy and physiology and and psychology. Like, oh, that's why I operate like that, you know? (laughs) Oh, that's why I feel more uh, depressed after I don't have enough sleep, you know? Like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Okay, I'll make sure I go to bed earlier today rather than ruminating on this idea like, oh, I'm feeling horrible today. (laughs) Right. So yeah, it can help us in in our life very much. So there's nothing like learning. I love it. Absolutely. Thank you for making that last point. Yeah, definitely recommending that. Yeah, people, people actually dive in, dive into the research themselves. And um, there's so much to be gained from that. And I can tell I can just tell how much that's really informed and excited you, Matt, and it clearly permeates all of your work. Yeah, so thank thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Travis, for being here. And I think this conversation, I'm really excited for people to listen to this. I I think there was a lot of great information shared. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Please keep up the good work because you're doing amazing and we yoga teachers need it. So great work, both of you. Thanks, man. And thanks, Jenny. And that wraps up our look at language, fear, and science in the yoga studio. Remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in any of the memberships on my website, including Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program. You can learn more and sign up at JennyRawlings.com, and the link is in the show notes. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. And if you found this discussion to be of value, you could really support us if you had time to subscribe to this podcast and to leave us a rating or a review. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon.